Happy Mother's Day to you moms, to all you mothers who are empty nesters or perhaps have suffered a miscarriage or are in the thick of it. Happy Mother's Day. We treasure you this morning. There's nothing easy about being a mom, but the role of a mother or spiritual mother cannot be overstated in raising a child and preparing them for adulthood. Every mom is different, but there is one thing that nearly every mom desires for her child. She desires to see them succeed even though she knows the obstacles they will face. And this morning, Jesus expresses that very same desire for His followers. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10 as Jesus is preparing to send His disciples in His mission and He knows the obstacles they will face. Matthew chapter 10, please follow along as I begin reading in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the servant, or for the disciple, to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And here in Jesus' charge for his disciples, his instruction as he is sending them out, it is clear that when disciples of Jesus meet opposition for Jesus' sake, they will also be met with grace to endure. When, not if, when disciples of Jesus meet opposition because of their participation with Jesus in his mission, they will also be met with grace, God's provision of what they need to endure. Now, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, this is perhaps a strange place to jump in and certainly a strange Mother's Day uh, message. But two weeks ago when we began chapter 10, Jesus, uh, Matthew lists the 12 disciples whom Jesus called whom he subsequently sent as apostles to do exactly what Jesus has been doing since coming down from the mountain in the eighth chapter of Matthew's gospel. Last week, Jesus gave his disciples some practical instructions, promising that 
as they journey, they would find people of peace who would practically meet their needs. But this week, we're introduced to a new movement in the narrative, a new movement in Jesus' instruction, and it's marked by Matthew's favorite transitory word, behold. Now keep in mind, Matthew is writing after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And Matthew is a master scribe, so what I understand Matthew to be doing is moving from Jesus' instruction now to the twelve, to all disciples that he is sending. It's as though he's looking right through the twelve that he is speaking to at you and I. And so as we talk about disciples or followers of Jesus, hear yourself in these words. So in addition to uh, Matthew's transition, behold, he appears to have this kind of view speaking to us for a couple of other reasons. In verse 5 of Matthew 10, Jesus is clear that the disciples are to go nowhere near the Gentiles. And here, and there's a shift that has taken place in verse 18, their testimony in court is for the Gentiles. So I see and understand the instruction happening here to be a foreshadowing of the development of Jesus' mission, which we see take place in the book of Acts. In verse 20, the second, the second reason I read it this way is that the Spirit of the Father is present speaking through the disciples. But thus far in Matthew's gospel, we've been introduced to Jesus, or to the Spirit at Jesus' baptism, to the Spirit at Jesus' temptation, but we have not been introduced to him as the promised helper whom Jesus would send after his death, resurrection, and ascension. But here in Matthew 10, the Spirit appears to be present and active in a manner not unlike we read of in the book of Acts. So as Jesus is speaking this morning, hear him addressing you as sent ones. Hear a description of your life should you decide to follow Jesus in the manner in which he sent you. And here is what Jesus anticipates for his followers. Look with me at verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus expects that as you follow him, you will encounter opposition. We've talked about sheep uh, several times actually over the last couple of weeks because Jesus sent the disciples to the lost sheep of Israel. And we understand that sheep are the helpless ones. Sheep are the ones that need protection. But this time, instead of going to the sheep, the sheep are now being sent. And they're not being sent into fields of wildflowers where they can dance and frolic. They're being sent into the midst of wolves. Jesus knows that his disciples will not be accidentally caught in the crossfire, but that, the, that they will be deliberately attacked for his sake. Jesus sends now the powerless into the territory of the power hungry. And I'll admit, okay, two things. I would have done this differently. 
I would have wiped out the wolves and then sent the sheep in. And I think there were some that expected him to do that. But it is precisely in the wolf-centered world that the good news of the kingdom takes root. It means something. The other thing I would change is I would send disciples as wolves in the midst of sheep. That also sounds preferable. Perhaps having the controls of cultural or political power would make things a bit easier, but the good news of the kingdom is not news about power or achieving it. Instead, it's the, it's the announcement that the underdog is vindicated and welcomed by God. You remember the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. But that's not how Jesus is doing things. Instead, he is sending his followers as sheep in the midst of wolves, and we therefore should not be surprised when predators attack from every side. But Jesus doesn't make that announcement. He also gives instruction of how the disciples, the sheep, are to live in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. If your mind immediately thought of the garter snake you saw in your yard and wondering what is so wise about that, then the metaphor has lost its, its power. But... If in seeking to understand the Scriptures, what is he talking about? You open the Scriptures. The first page in Genesis 3, you're introduced to a serpent, a snake, with these words. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. The serpent in ancient times was a common representation of cunning, shrewdness, and craftiness. In the garden, the serpent used those attributes maliciously to tempt Eve to disbelieve God. But in Matthew 10, Jesus is calling his disciples to use those same attributes wisely, benevolently, that they might navigate life in the midst of wolves. The dove... uh, is the counterpart to the snake and was thought of in ancient time to be a symbol of purity and innocence. It's listed among the clean animals in the Old Testament. And still today, its image is a representation of peace. So the craftiness of the snake, the wisdom of the snake, is not used maliciously or to manipulate power or control, but instead is is now coupled with and tempered by the gentleness and the innocentness and the above-reproachness of the dove. The serpent uh, left alone, the serpent's wisdom and cunningness left alone, may be tempted in its navigation of life in the midst of wolves to divert, to uh, disown love of God or love of neighbor, but in the skillful attempt to navigate The dove cannot compromise in its love for God or neighbor. It is innocent and it leaves no casualties in its wake. So the serpent and the dove illustrate the manner in which disciples of Jesus are to be in the the world where they are surrounded by wolves. Wise, navigating, 
the snares set before them, and innocent without reproach before God or man. Notice what Jesus is saying here, though. He knows already that he is sending his followers into enemy territory. He knows already that they will not be treated well for his sake. What would you expect him to do in that position? Maybe some of you moms are thinking, I would never send my kid to do something that I knew would hurt them. But what Jesus is doing here is redefining the mission in light of his own character. He is kind, but participation in the mission is not optional. He is strong, but he is not unconcerned for his followers. And so what I want you to see as we continue reading is though, is that as Jesus has already cleaned out the disciples' bedroom, he is sending them out, but he is not ambivalent toward their fate. Instead, what, when they meet opposition, he meets them time and again with grace. In what follows, Jesus describes enemies outside and enemies within that oppose the disciples. And in each instance, he promises to meet them as they suffer for their participation in his mission with everything they need to endure. Now, Matthew's already made it clear that, that grace in broad strokes belongs to people who are persecuted for Jesus' sake. And in the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5, verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great. But now in Matthew 10, we find that there's not merely a generic grace, a sense in which you're doing the right thing and living a full and fruitful life, but rather specific grace that meets the disciples when they face opposition. So look with me now at the first of these opposing forces that the disciples will face in verse 17. Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. He says, Beware of men. Literally, beware of humans. Okay, we're done talking about all the animal stuff now. The wolves represent humans. And here is what the humans, the disciples are sent proclaiming good news to, will do to them. They'll deliver you over to courts, flog you in synagogues, and drag you before governors and kings. Now, as you hear that, that kind of opposition sounds to us a lot like a word that we throw around today, persecution. Jesus knows and expects that his followers will be persecuted. What is persecution? Uh, the Cambridge Dictionary defines it as unfair or cruel treatment, and Merriam-Webster is to harass or punish 
in a manner designed to injure, grieve, or afflict, or in just the meaning of the original language, to follow after with hostile intent. In this case, it is the external or the public opponents to the message of Jesus who are doing the pursuing with hostile intent. And this persecution, it happens publicly in the courts, in the synagogues, and before governors and kings. Now, what Jesus is doing is not, when he uses the word governors and kings, I think that there's going to be some political component to this. What he's doing, however, is illustrating that this is the escalation of his own opposition. And his disciples will participate likewise. You may remember uh, on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection that in his betrayal, Jesus was brought before Caiaphas, the high priest, in the council, the Sanhedrin. And then he was handed over to Pilate, the governor, who forwarded him on to Herod, the king. Now, what Jesus is describing isn't political at all. The person that he's, persecution he's talking about is not Supreme Court rulings or governor's mandates, but instead, Jesus is making very plain that the enemies from the outside will treat the disciples just as he is treated and take them to the very top. Jesus is not speaking about culture wars where people think badly of your party or affiliation or where the Judeo-Christian worldview is legislated into obsolescence. He is speaking very specifically about you. You being dragged out of your home and put publicly and physically on trial. This is not a liberal political agenda doing the persecuting, but rather a very real human being being very physically dragged for very physical trial. And this reality he's describing is today a very stark reality for the followers of Jesus across the world. Now look at three little words tucked away in verse 18 that help us see the narrowness of this vision that Jesus has for why his disciples experience persecution. Those three little words are, for my sake. It's mission critical that we see these words, for my sake, because it becomes for us now a filter for our own cultural engagement and our active participation in Jesus' mission. So let me try to illustrate for you how the for my sake looks practically. Try to remember what life was like as a teenager or anticipate what life will be like as a teenager. And the instruction that your mom gave you as she prepared you to be a responsible and trustworthy adult. Her advice might have said, don't sneak out at night. Now, you might think, as a teenager, that you are being persecuted for your mom's sake by simply living in a neighborhood where sneaking out at night is normal. It's, it's uh, invited. It's even good. 
but really you're not persecuted for your mom's sake at all. You just have that pitiful or perhaps indignant feeling that you know sneaking out at night is wrong and is damaging. That isn't the opposition or the persecution, persecution that Jesus has in mind here. Your, your offended feelings or convictions. You might think that you're being persecuted for your mom's sake because you even tell your friends, I won't sneak out at night. But really, your persecution, your persecution is that they think of, of you badly. You're the Johnny Rain Cloud. This isn't what Jesus has in mind either, a rejection of your personal belief or activity or your personal quirks. But it is another thing altogether to say to your friends, I cannot sneak out at night because my mom has shown me a better way for young men to live and to spend their evenings. And she, she invited you in to our house tonight. Would you come? You can imagine how that would go over with your friends. But now any mistreatment that you experience is not because of your own sake or your own quirks, but it's for your mom's sake. The problem that your friends have with you is not really you, it's your mom. Now, I, I use that illustration because it highlights that un, until the message of mom is proclaimed, it isn't really persecution for your mom's sake. And it must be clear here that opposition for the sake of Jesus requires that the message of Jesus be spoken. There's a difference between passively living in a culture that you don't agree with or receiving personal mistreatment for your own quirks than for proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and being opposed for it. Let me remind you what Jesus has sent his disciples to do. He's not sent them merely to have a simple, personal, private, Judeo-Christian worldview. That's not bad, that's helpful. But he's sent them, look at verse 7, to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you need to decide today Given what you know about what will come your way, will you follow Jesus? Being a disciple requires proclaiming the kingdom, and guess what will happen to you? You will be dragged before courts and governors and kings for my sake, but you cannot be silent. Now, so far it perhaps seems that Jesus is ambivalent about what happens to his disciples, but he is anything but, as evidenced by what he promises. When his disciples meet opposition, they will also be met with grace. Look with me at verse 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I hope as you have been considering suffering for Jesus' sake already in these first few minutes that you feel what I've been feeling all week, anxious. If this is anxiety-inducing, what happens if I speak good news and my friends or family mistreat me? 
What would happen if I got sued and called to court? How would I speak in a way that both saves my life and is faithful to what is true? What would happen to my family? Good. In asking those questions, you are calculating the cost of following Jesus. But you can't role-play enough scenarios to wiggle your way out or prevent your persecution. persecution. So look at the grace that meets Jesus' followers in this. What you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you, so don't be anxious. When you stand trial, God Himself will help you. The how and the what of your response will not come from your own capacity. Remember, you didn't get into this situation on your own capacity. It's for His sake. And your help will come from the Spirit who stands alongside you in trial. And this grace is not just generic in its provision, but so specific. When you stand public trial, the Holy Spirit will give you words in your public testimony. And we see this play out in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is given to the disciples of Jesus and His arrival inaugurates the mission of the church and it unfolds from there. But after only the second sermon from Peter's mouth, it says this in Acts chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had already heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, I've already mentioned his name as one who uh, tried Jesus, and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power and by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Exactly what Jesus has said proved true. The public opposition came, and when Peter arrested and on trial opens his mouth, he's filled with the Spirit. Will you bank on the fact that the Holy Spirit will do for you just what the Holy Spirit, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do for you? Will you follow Jesus to the point of putting this promise of grace to the test? I would like to say it gets easier, but it doesn't. The opposition isn't merely an external threat from an outsider. Jesus also anticipates the opposition will come from those who are closest, whose opposition hurts the most. Look at verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Maybe you would be kind of excited to get to testify on live TV 
about the kingdom of heaven when you are on trial and it's aired on every TV around the nation. But on the back side of that same coin is the question, will you follow Jesus, proclaim the kingdom of heaven even if you are opposed, and not just opposed but betrayed, and not just betrayed but killed by your own family? With Jesus, the stakes just keep getting higher. And in verse 22, they get higher still. Your family, your extended family, your neighbors, your friends, your barista, they will all hate you for my name's sake. There's that line again, for my name's sake. Because you proclaim the message of Jesus, you will be hated, betrayed, and killed by those closest to you. But again, in the face of the closest and most severe opposition, disciples are met with grace. Consider what Jesus says at the end of verse 22, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The one who endures in this will be saved. It will be worth it. That is gift enough in itself, but there are also, there's also grace that will help you to hold on and endure. I think Jesus gives at least three specific gifts that help his disciples to endure. The first is the church. Jesus never sent his disciples out individually. He sent them out together. And in our gathering this morning, seated in our midst are men and women, mothers and fathers, who have been betrayed and disowned by their children, their husbands, and their parents for the sake of Christ. And they were singing, Great is thy faithfulness, loudly nonetheless. I hope you hear their singing, see their presence as the ballast of encouragement that it is. This is one of the reasons the church gets together, not, he, not just here, but all over the world, with increasing urgency as the stakes get higher in persecuted regions, so that we might endure in the midst of our opposition. This is one of the reasons why if you decide that simple church attendance is optional, you'll have a very hard time enduring. And you will doubt whether or not it will be worth it. The second gift that Jesus gives is the Spirit. The same one that gives you words to, as you stand in public trial is the same one that whispers in your ear in Romans 8, you're a child of God. It's the same Spirit who Paul, when he was on trial before Nero, spoke of in 2 Timothy 4. He says, at my first defense, no one took my part. All deserted me. And then he says, but the Lord stood by me and gave me strength. The Spirit will help you endure even to death. He will stand by you when there is no one else. He will sustain you. 
And one of the ways he will do that is by pointing you to the third specific grace that meets you in this opposition. It's hinted at at the end of verse 23. The Son of Man is coming. There's an end in sight to all of this. And it ends with the vindication of God's people when Jesus returns. Now, it's interesting at the end of, or in verse 23, Jesus is quite clear that persecution isn't the mission. Don't go out and get yourself persecuted as a result of hearing this. Instead, don't let the persecution or the threat sideline you from participation in the actual mission. With the wisdom of a serpent, the innocence of a dove, move on. The time is too short because the Son of Man is returning. Now, it's clear in these two cases that uh, when there is public opposition and private opposition, there will be practical provision of grace that meets the specific needs of Jesus' disciples. But there's yet another grace, a final grace in this instruction, and that is this. You're in good company. Look at verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough. For the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? What this means for us as we consider our own calling to suffer for Jesus' sake is that he has raised us up as an equal. We are like him in his suffering. So we should expect the same treatment that Jesus was treated with. Jesus at least anticipates this for us. Now, whereas in the last two instances of opposition, it was explicit that it was for Jesus' sake and for the sake of his name, now we're talking about the family name. They mock the, the, the master of the house by calling him the name Beelzebul, the crass name of a Baal-like God which eventually came to be synonymous with Satan himself. So, if they do that to him, what would you expect they would do to his kids? As you are proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, you'll be persecuted for the words you say, yes, but you'll also be persecuted because of the name on the back of your jersey. But notice the grace here. It's enough. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. You don't need to outperform Jesus in this. You don't need to bear any more than he bore. Your alignment with Jesus in his mission is enough. Your allegiance to Jesus in the face of opposition is enough. Just as he suffered, you will suffer. Just as he rose again, you will rise again. You are in good, good company. Now, this message could easily have been uh, two or eight sermons long. The wells are deep in this text. But what I hope you've seen this morning is a broad picture of what Jesus expects life to be like as you follow him. When disciples meet opposition for Jesus' sake, they will also be met with grace to endure. If you don't yet follow Jesus, then perhaps you would consider the cost. And consider this, if Jesus is good enough 
and true enough that people would literally be tried and executed for His sake? Would you consider that maybe there would be something to that? I'd love to talk to you and introduce you to Him. And some of you perhaps follow Jesus passively, and this morning is not just an encouragement, but is more of a, a, a warning. You haven't yet quite followed Him in His mission. You haven't yet quite proclaimed anything. And you might feel upset by the current cultural events and currents, but you're also not threatened by them because you don't have skin in the game. And Jesus is inviting you to a full and fruitful life when He invites you to get in on the action. But for all of you who follow Jesus, hear this. You're in good company when you suffer like Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we have calculated the cost of following you this morning, we admit that we need your Spirit even now to help us to follow you wholly. Father, I would pray that you would have mercy on your lambs who are surrounded by wolves, that you would protect them, sustain their life, and as they experience every grace to endure, may people find salvation and fullness of life in you from here to the ends of the earth. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.